coming up on today's show, 2023, will this be a turning point geopolitically? We talk so much about healthcare and the mess that it is. How do we fix it? We'll chat with Dr. Catherine Smart and a report that's caused a lot of buzz. We find out that Canada's top CEOs earned more than the average worker in the first 45 minutes of the new year. We've got a handful of situations that are already threatening the world order, as you know, and and who knows where they may go. Russia and China would probably top that list, of course, but they're not alone. If you think about it, there's all kinds. As for Canada's readiness, concerns. We've talked about this before over the past year or so. Um, in testimony, though, to the House of Commons and in interviews with the media, General Wayne Eyre, Canada's Chief of Defence Staff, has not held back at all in his assessment of the current situation and some of the risks that he sees on the horizon and what it means to the readiness of his troops and what needs to be done to make sure they are ready. So to get some insight on that, we're going to chat with uh, Christian Luprecht, who is a professor at the Royal Military College and Queen's University, editor of the Canadian Military Journal, also the author of Intelligence as Democratic Statecraft, published by the Oxford University Press. Christian, thanks for joining us. Appreciate your time today, sir. Good morning. Always a pleasure. So this, uh, we're, we're talking primarily about Wayne Iyer and the things that he's said, and he's spoken quite candidly about a number of the issues that he sees facing our country's military. Some have said, you know, it's kind of unusual for the top military commander to be so frank and be so open about how he sees the situation. Do you agree? Is this unusual? Yeah, I think it's an interesting observation that you make about civil-military relations, because in this country, those tend to be relatively subjective in the sense that uh, chiefs of defense staffs are relatively deferential to the minister. But really what we've seen over the last 25 years is this evolution in terms of international security, where the international security environment, the types of conflicts and threats we face um, are becoming very complex. And by and large, politicians have a very hard time understanding those, let alone the Canadian public. And so we've very much seen a change in sort of civil-military relations where not just in Canada, but in other countries as well, some of the senior leadership has been a bit more articulate uh, about the types of challenges because there's a growing concern uh, that, you know, if we work on the premise that democracies often take it for for granted and we need to defend it, and democracies under duress around the world, there's an increasing gap between our ability to actually prepare for the defense of that democracy and where the public and politicians are at in terms of what they're willing to do about it. And I think it makes sense. You know, if you're you're the general, you're you're saying, you know what, I'm just going to be honest with you about what we see and what the situation is here, almost in an educational um, way of, of trying to just sort of shine a light on the situation and the shortcomings and get everybody on board. It's not a harmful approach by any means, is it? Uh, no, I mean, as p- critics will say that, you know, this is just the military trying to get more money, get more equipment and so forth. But look, I think if you look at our military um, and the very severe measures that General Air has implemented, for instance, from stopping all non-discretionary activity, uh, this military is under very serious duress. And yeah. if you had more than one concurrent serious crisis, for instance, a major domestic operation uh, and an international crisis, the military would not be able to respond in its current fashion to both of those crises, um, let alone being able to have uh, all the expertise and all the equipment that it would need uh, to respond to such a crisis. And so I think it's not just about the general posture of the armed forces. Uh, It's about over 20 years of benign neglect by both sides of the political aisle. uh, And uh, General Aaron now having to work with an organization that is, by and large, not fit for purpose for the challenges that we're encountering um, as our country, as our continent, and as the world. 
In a year-end interview with the CBC, he said he thinks geopolitically the world is what he considers to be a turning point. This is the next year will be very, you know, um, uh, fundamental to what happens going forward. And Canada is not in a position to respond. Do you think he's talking primarily about Russia and China? I mean, that, he also mentions the Arctic. There's a lot of different balls in the air, isn't there? Yeah, and uh, add to that sort of uh, compound effects that are sort of fuel on the fire. If you think about uh, inflation, you think about a possible recession, uh, think about the ongoing demographic challenges and the rapid population growth that some of the least sustainable parts of the world continue to experience, compounded all of that uh, by the effects of, uh, of climate change. Uh, so it's not just the instability that some of our adversaries that are looking to overthrow the international system that we've built um, are, are generating, um, but how these are being accelerated by some of the factors that we simply cannot control. And, you know, in a democracy, we always have to remember that uh, people always start with this values-based, whatever, foreign policy. But really, ultimately, if we don't have security as a country, as our allies, as our partners, then we're not going to be able to enjoy our prosperity because that is ultimately built on our security and stability. And if we don't have prosperity, then we're also not going to be able to to enjoy our democracy and democratic values. So security, um, uh, national, uh, regional, and international is ultimately a first mover. And I think, you know, the, the point that he's trying to make, and he's made pretty clearly, is we've actually had to reposition um, some of the things that we do in terms of responding. Like you said, if we, had a, if we had a domestic incident and we had to respond to an international incident at the same time, we couldn't do it. Um, so he says he's going to position the forces that we are more interested in national defense rather than domestic issues. So, I mean, we just can't do it all. Bottom line, I think what he's trying to do is say we need more, right? And, you know, he talks about procurement. He talks about the Indo-Pacific strategy saying, well, we can't meet the needs we have now we can't add on to it it sounds to me like he's just saying this is all great but we need a lot more support and help we need to rethink the way we handle the military in this country yeah, and it seems that the way the government is devising its strategy is fundamentally disconnected from the yeah. resources that we actually have. So it's great to have this Indo-Pacific strategy with trying to send frigates and all sorts of things out there. But look, if we don't even have those frigates, if we don't actually have the submarines that, for instance, urgently need to be renewed and uh, we're not even have a conversation about it, that's going to be very difficult. I'll give you a very concrete example. The United States and several allies have been pushing Canada hard to engage in a stability mission in Haiti in part because we have experience, we have the language competencies and so forth, the Canadian Armed Forces, with what it is currently doing around the world, in particular for NATO allies and its obligations to continental defense, simply does not have the capacity to engage in yet another major mission. And as a result, people are fundamentally suffering in countries around the world because Canada cannot step up with the capabilities that it has. Um, and our allies and our partners are noticing. And we're increasingly, on the one hand, not being taken seriously. And on the other hand, we're losing significant influence because when you cannot contribute, you also don't have a voice at the table. Do we continue to just talk the talk or ultimately we have to walk the walk, right? I mean, we've talked about increasing our defense spending to the 2% required to be part of NATO, all these sorts of things. Are we at a point now where the understanding has sunk in that, yes, we actually need to do something about this? 
Well, I think we're trying to have it both ways. We pretend right, yeah. to be a G7 country, but we're really sort of our defense posture and our spending is that of a, of a relatively modest sort of um, entity. There are many smaller countries that do much more on defense than we do. And so either we are a G7 country and we assert our interests in ourselves and are taken seriously and we equip and we staff up accordingly, or if we say, look, we're just 10,000 people short, we don't want to spend the money, uh, we don't have the equipment to do this, then we're just going to say to the world, well, we're just going to be a secondary country. We're not going to have an interest in shaping, uh, in asserting our interests and in shaping the world and world events. We're just going to stand by and see what things happen. Then we can do that. But it means a significant loss of influence to Canada, to Canada's interests and to Canada's credibility. And I would say that in the environment that we live in, um, and especially what's happening also south of the border, never has it been more important for Canada to be able to assert its interests when it comes to international stability and security. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Christian, thanks so much for being here. I appreciate your time. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Have a good morning. You too. That's Christian Luprecht, who is a professor at the Royal Military College and Queen's University and editor of the Canadian Military Journal. Speaking of health, uh, we've got another crisis in healthcare. I don't know if this one's as bad as the other ones. It's certainly an inconvenience. You've probably seen the stories. Um, AHS apologizing for some incredibly long wait times that people have been facing when they went to labs for testing recently. Uh, It's all a result of last month, the province announced that lab services in large urban centers, so we're talking about places like Grand Prairie, Red Deer, Edmonton, Calgary, some of the bigger cities, um, would see lab services move from moved to DynaLife. It had been done by a group called Alberta Precision Laboratories. And uh, as a result, people are reporting wait times of, you know, a couple hours, at least in some cases, especially in Calgary. AHS says the system experienced some network disruptions causing longer than average wait times. But they say, um, you know, as staff and as users get used to the new way of doing things and the new system, everything will work out in the end. Wait times will come down. So we shall see. But It's just the latest example on a long, long list of examples of issues with healthcare, not only in Alberta, but in Canada. And everyone seems to agree. Healthcare in Canada is in really, really rough shape. That's the easy part. There's no disputing that. The hard part, though, is coming up with a plan to fix it. That seems to be where the debate comes in. And the delegation, right? Because you got the provinces, they've all come together, they're united in calling on Ottawa to step up with more money. Feds say, yeah, okay, we can do that, but more money isn't the answer. We need to come up with a plan to make things better, not just spend more money on it. In the meantime, it's you and I. We struggle to find a family doc. Hospitals deal with absolutely crippling demand amid all kinds of illness and shortages in personnel. We know it's not good. We know there are some major problems. So what is the solution? We're going to talk with Dr. Catherine Smart, the past president of the Canadian Medical Association and a pediatrician in Whitehorse. Uh, Dr. Smart, thanks so much for being here. I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so let's start with the easy part, and that's the part that we all seem to agree on. Right now, everyone everyone will say, oh yeah, we've got some problems with our system. It's just, I, call it a crisis, call it what you want, but we definitely have some issues. That's fair, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's no debate that right now the healthcare system is not meeting the needs of Canadians. And as you said, it's not only in Alberta, it's across the country. That is a fact. 
So when we talk about what people are saying we need to do to make things better, the provinces, I said, they all came together and and, and their unanimous uh, uh, plan is we need more money. So they've gone to the feds. And you know what? They have a point. When 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 healthcare started in this country, it was a 50-50 split. Now it's about 25% from the feds. They're saying we want to see it go back to 35%. So is money, into in, your thinking, is money at least part of the solution here? Is that a requirement? Well, I think what, you know, I think there's several aspects to that. It's It's complicated, right? The provinces are talking about direct transfers, the federal governments are talking about tax credits. So even the percentage amount is different depending on whose analysis you look at. I think what you what, what you also need to think about, or we need to think about as citizens, is what are we getting for the money we're spending? Um, and when we compare ourselves to other similar countries, you know, we're spending a lot more money on healthcare and we have one of the lowest performing healthcare systems. So the only healthcare yeah. system worse than ours is the United States. Uh, everywhere else is doing better than us and they're spending similar dollars or in some cases, less dollars. So I think that's important, right? More money, yes, could we do more things for sure. But I do think there's that fundamental question of if we don't modernize and transform our system to meet the needs of Canadians today, we just keep spending more money and we're not getting better outcomes for people. And I think what people want is they want accessible, high quality care that's available to them when they need it. And right now that's not what's happening. And more dollars alone isn't going to solve that. So glad to hear you say that. That that makes perfect sense to me. And that's what the feds are saying. You know what? We have more money. We can spend more money. We're not saying we won't, but that's not the answer. We need to come up with a way of, they call it reforming the system instead of just throwing money at it. What, what would that reform look like? Like you say, there's some things we can do to make it different, make it work better. What Where would you start? Yeah, that's such an important question. Of course, there's many, many things. But I I think where I would start is I would look at, you know, where are the biggest pain points in the system? And and where is is there the most value for Canadians in terms of what could be changed? So for sure, access to primary care is a huge issue. We know one in five Canadians do not have a primary care provider. That's the front door to the system. That's the person who's going to monitor your health with you, make sure that, you know, kind of champion your care, make sure you're getting what you need. And right now, many people can't access that. I mean, we've literally got people taking out ads in the newspaper to get their loved ones medications refilled I mean, yeah this is entirely unacceptable so we need to really understand what's going on there and, and what we know is we don't have enough physicians for the population our population is getting older people have more complexity people are surviving longer uh, you know medicine's gotten much more sophisticated so an individual physician cannot care for the same volume of patients they did in the past so we need teams right physicians need to be working with other healthcare professionals so that they can provide care to more people. That's the only way we're going to get every Canadian a medical home. We've been talking about that for a long time. It's been actioned in some places. Alberta has some family health team models Mm -hmm. that are working well. So we need to take those things that we know work and we need to scale them and we need to make sure that that's what we're doing across the board. So that's one example. The other place, of course, there's major pain points are are hospital resources. We have one of the lowest number of hospital beds per capita of OECD countries. And what we've seen, of course, throughout the pandemic and now is that we're just on that knife's edge all the time of what we can manage. And, you know, right now, of course, it's been in children's hospitals boom, surge in demand, suddenly we cannot meet that need anymore because we have no ability to flex our system because it's constantly on the edge of capacity. So we need to be looking at that, right? What are the needs in hospitals? How do we create enough redundancy there that we can flex for different times a year to make sure that people are getting timely access to care? On the adult side of the system, we have a lot of people in the hospital that don't need to be in the hospital because of a lack of ability to care for people in the community. So if we don't solve for that, that problem's only going to get worse because Canadians are only getting older and they're only living longer. So if we're going to warehouse people in our hospitals, 
our hospitals aren't going to be able to do what they need to do. On the children's side of the side of the system, you know, pediatric healthcare has been underfunded and under-resourced for a long time, but it's not keeping up with the growing population of children. And again, we've got more kids with complexity these days because we can do more for people, which is amazing. But then we need to be resourcing that side of our system to make sure that kids are getting the care that they need. So it's really like stepping back and looking at what's going on in the population. What are the needs? How do we project for that? And make sure that we're planning in the system in that regard. And then the third piece of it that's really important is that human health resource, right? There's no healthcare without the healthcare professionals that care for patients. And we're not optimizing there either. We know we have a lot of foreign trained healthcare professionals that live that immigrated to Canada, with the understanding they would work in healthcare, but there's not then the licensing pathways or the regulatory pathways to get them into the system. That's a problem that needs to be solved. That's a low hanging fruit. We've got Canadians that have trained abroad, you know, in the UK or in Australia, who can't then come back into our system and get the training that's needed to be licensed to live and work here as a healthcare professional. I mean, this is this is crazy. This is resources that are being wasted. We don't have the planning at the med school, nursing school level to put that projection over, you know, 10 to 15 years in terms of the numbers that are needed. So we need to be getting back to the beginning and looking at what is what do we need and are we training enough people? You know. There's, that's not happening either. And, and that's, I think, why you're also hearing the federal government talk a lot about data. Because a lot of these things we're talking about, right, mean we need the data to be monitoring what we're doing, to be like analyzing where we're at and planning for the future. And we're not doing any of that. And that's partly why we find ourselves where we are today. When we take a look at that, I mean, it, it just seems like taking the resources we have and expanding them as best we can. We know that's a process, though. But some of the things you're talking about are a better use of them. And one of the things I was interested in, I didn't realize this, but a lot of doctors surveyed by your organization say they're wasting way too much time on paperwork that they don't have them if we're talking about our frontline workers family docs er docs things like that uh, we need them on the front lines actually doing healthcare, not paperwork is there not a way that that could be a quick fix Oh, absolutely. And that is a huge issue. And as you said, you know, when you talk to people that have an office-based practice, most of them are spending another 10 to 12 hours a week just on paperwork, right? That's incredible when you think about it. That's more than a full day of work just doing paperwork. And I can tell you that certainly my experience as a pediatrician, some of that is, you know, poor quality electronic medical records that have come in, you know, there's absolutely some advantages to them, but they're cumbersome, they don't work well, and they've been shown to increase the amount of time people spend doing administration. There's also just the rising burden of forms, insurance forms, various forms that people need for things, things like sick notes, I mean, just crazy things that people are spending their time doing that aren't helpful. You know, all the most major hospitals have, have implemented electronic medical records and sometimes they work well, but sometimes they don't. And you'll hear stories, you know, of someone, they press the wrong button and it's three hours of their time to undo whatever happened to try to get the right thing for Ugh. that patient. I mean, it's ridiculous. So, of course, that's leading to huge burnout because what we want to do is we want to be talking to patients. We want to be caring for patients. We don't want to be typing on computer screens, working out these glitches. Um, and this is, I think, again, why we need to bring different people into the system to be supporting physicians and other healthcare professionals around some of this administrative piece so that we can be doing what we're trained to do, which is care for people. Um, But right now, that's not what's happening. And a lot of that administrative burden is downloaded onto the healthcare professionals themselves. Um, And that's a waste of our time. And it's low value for patients. um, And it's, it's not really adding capacity in the system. 
What you're talking about, and, this, uh, and I'll let you go after this, but this is part of my concern around this, is the fact that we know there's a real shortage. We need more bodies. We need more human resources. And, and, and the things that you're talking about, and you mentioned burnout, and there's a very high rate of that. More than 50% uh, of the, the physicians that your group surveyed said, they, yeah, they're experiencing burnout, and a bunch are leaving. We need to maintain what we have. We can't, we can't afford to be losing them. So how big of an issue is supporting what we do have rather than seeing them say, I can't do this anymore? Oh, it's a fundamental issue because you're absolutely right. You know, for hemorrhaging people out the one side, adding more people to yeah. the front of the line isn't going to be helpful, right? And and we need those experienced senior people to mentor that next generation of healthcare professionals. So the losses are substantial when you know when you look across the system. So no, I think addressing burnout is huge. We need to understand that burnout is a systems issue. It's not an individual resiliency issue. It comes from working in a system that's not functioning well. So if we don't solve for this problem, the cost of it is literally, and it's been estimated, it's in the millions or billions of dollars what burnout does to a healthcare system. So we need to get serious about this as a systems issue. Again, we know what the issues are. Right, um, right. We have ideas about how to solve them. It's not that, you know, people are going, oh, we have no idea what to do. We know what to do. But what we need is our politicians to get beyond the political rhetoric and the finger pointing to get to the table with those of us in the system who have the solutions and to start to, you know, work collaboratively with a longer term lens. You know, we have to get through our political cycles as well, because you're not going to transform something as complex as the healthcare system sure. in a political cycle. So let's like get down to brass tacks here and think to ourselves, what do Canadians want? Canadians want a healthcare system that's there for them when they need it. It's that simple. Right now, that's not what's happening. We have solutions, but it's going to take work and it's going to take a new way of thinking and it's going to take getting beyond politics to get there. But I think that's what Canadians expect. Um, and I think clearly it's what Canadians deserve. Yeah, it, Like you say, it's going to take political courage is what it's going to take. I mean, it's just, someone has to step up and just say, this is what needs to be done. That's right. And leadership, right? Yeah, Courageous yeah. leadership to, to do things differently. Um, but I, I think that the time is, is now. Yeah, I, I, it's probably time was probably a few years ago, if not earlier. Yeah, but, but absolutely. Yeah, n better late than never. Um, Dr. Smart, thanks so much for being with us today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. That is Dr. Catherine Smart, past president of the Canadian Medical Association. She's also a pediatrician in Whitehorse, so she's working on the front lines too. So when we're sitting here talking about finances and making the most of your money, here's the answer. This is easy. Just become the CEO of one of Canada's top companies. If you can do that, you're laughing, believe it or not. Within their first hour of work yesterday, okay, so starting the year, Canada's highest earning CEOs made more than your average Canadian will make all year long. The average a Canadian makes in a year is $58,800. Took CEOs about 43 minutes to hit that. Um, according to the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives, the top 100 CEOs in this country earned an average of $14.3 million for the year, and that is a record high, much higher than the previous record of $11.8 million. They now make, get this, these top CEOs now make 243 times more than your average Canadian worker. How do those numbers land for you? I think for most of us, it's there's the natural human tendency is to be a little envious. But if you think it through, should we be? I, I, how should we take this? And what does it mean? We're going to chat now with uh, David McDonald, who's a senior economist at the CCPA and the uh, report's author. Um, David, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate you being here. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. You know, regardless, when you hear those numbers, 243 times more than average, they made the average salary in 45 minutes. I mean... 
It's mind-boggling numbers. It really is eye-popping, and I think it makes people angry, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a huge difference between what, you know, the average worker was going to experience and then what the top CEOs are going to experience. I mean, I think it is worth pointing out that CEOs are always and have always been paid more than the average worker. Uh, But it's the ratio that matters and how much it's changing. So, you know, in the 60s and 70s in Canada, you know, CEOs made more than the average worker. It was 20 to 30 times more, which is still a lot more. Um, And so, but that's changed substantially through till today. Um, where instead of it being 20 or 30 times, uh, now we're at 250 times. Uh, you know, 243 was the was the most yeah. recent uh, data. So, I mean, it, it's really increased. That gap has increased over time, uh, you know, as we follow it. And I think that's probably where people get more frustrated. I mean, I think we all have an understanding that, hey, if you're running a massive, huge company that employs thousands of people, great, you deserve to be very, very well compensated for that. Um, But I think when they see the disparity, like you say, when it goes from 20 times the average worker to 243, it's not so much what they make, it's the gap between what they make and what their employees make, where the the friction comes in, right? Yeah, and... You know, it, we we often think, well, CEOs work hard, and they certainly do. Yeah. You know, they're you know they got degrees and they've got experience and so on, and they should be paid more. The trouble is, is that companies uh, are successful. You know, if they have a good CEO, they're also successful if they have good workers. Uh, you know, you can't the company doesn't run just because there's one person at the very top. Uh, you know, the company runs because they have a good workforce, and all you know, all those folks uh, are, are are contributing to that. And so, you know, when the company does well, or when the economy in general does well. Um, you know, the question of income inequality is who benefits from, uh, you know, when a company does well or the economy does well. Does everybody benefit? Does everybody get a pay increase? Which, in my mind, would be fine, you know, CEOs and workers alike. Or is it just the CEOs that get the pay increase? Um, and that seems to be that there, there's more evidence of that, particularly that CEOs are protected on the downside. That's certainly what we saw in 2020. And then uh, when there's huge increases in in corporate profits, like we saw in the inflationary period in 2021, uh, CEOs see huge benefits from that, even though average workers get run over by inflation. Um, What about the fact that we're not talking about salary? I mean, this is largely due to bonuses, right? When you take a look at how this pay package is made up for these CEOs, it's all based on performance bonuses. Not all, but almost all, right? Oh, yeah. So so CEOs would get a salary, but on average, it's very small percentage of their overall pay. Uh, overall pay. Uh, on average, 83% of their total pay packages is in some form of bonuses or what, what as you say, performance pay. Yeah. Um, and so the idea here is that, uh, you know, this, if the company does well and the CEO gets a big bonus and the company does badly and the CEO gets nothing, uh, that's the idea of performance pay. I mean, in reality, though, it's more like pay for luck, not pay for performance, uh, but only good luck. And so, you know, in 2020, this is the, this is a lot of bad luck. You know, uh, profits plummeted because of the pandemic. Um, and so I expected CEO pay was going to go down because these bonuses would get totally erased. But they weren't for two reasons. One was that the feds bailed them out. Uh, and the other reason was they just changed the bonus formulas after the fact to exclude COVID-19. Uh, so they still got the bonuses. Uh, and so that's kind of the downside. And then you see on the upside, you know, in 2021, you've got this big inflationary yeah, surge, right. which drives corporate profits. Again, CEOs weren't responsible for the circumstances of that, you know, as the war in Ukraine and so on. Uh, but, you know, they get this opportunity to raise prices and all of a sudden they get these huge bonuses. Again, they didn't 
it, you know, that's not their performance. They're just in the right place at the right time. And so you end up with this sort of pay-for-luck scheme, but only good luck that results in ever higher CEO pay. And it also sort of highlights that the discrepancy, the division that we were talking about, because a lot of this, you know, with inflation going up, sure, they're going to see more revenue. The bottom line is going to be good for a lot of these companies because things cost more. However, those of us that are giving them more money aren't seeing the same kind of, you know, exponential growth in our wages. It's getting harder and harder for us, and it's our pain that's making them uh, end up in a better position, which is a big disconnect. Yeah, it's a total difference between what the impact of inflation is on the average worker and what the impact of inflation is for these top CEOs. I mean, for the average worker, they saw a 2% pay cut compared to the previous year, you know, after you include inflation, uh, because they can't buy as much with the same amount of money. Um, with the top CEOs, they see a 26% pay increase. Um, and that's being driven by the fact that prices are rising rapidly. That's what inflation is, higher prices. And so when you can increase prices... As a company, uh, that can mean that you can increase profits, and that's exactly what we saw in, in Canada. We're seeing record high proportions of our economy captured as after-tax profits in the corporate sector. Uh, as a result of these crazy, you know, historically high profits, uh, CEO pay goes through the roof. And so inflation's great for CEO pay. Yeah. I mean, it's terrible for the average worker, but great for CEO pay because profits are through the roof. So do we, I mean, I, I, we, you know, we know Jagmeet Singh's talked a lot about wealth taxes and things like that, windfall taxes. Do we need to have an intervention? Or, hey, is this just the way the market system works? This is how it's meant to play out? Well, I mean, left to their own devices, this, this pay is going to continue to go up forever. I mean, this is how the market system works, right? It does concentrate wealth at the top. Um, you know, one of the ways we stop concentration of wealth at the very top uh, is that we intervene through the tax system. I mean, you know, we don't want to go in and say this CEO gets paid $1 million, this CEO gets paid $2 million, and cap CEO pay. I mean, I don't think that's the right approach from a public policy perspective. Uh, we don't have to like these, these extreme pay packages, but we certainly, have, we certainly shouldn't be subsidizing them through the tax system. Uh, and we still do do that. I mean, we provide tax breaks to CEOs. The CEOs don't need tax breaks. Let them pay the tax rate that everybody else is paying. Um, and so we should certainly be closing those tax loopholes. But then on the other side, uh, we should also be looking at these pay-for-luck schemes as a source of important revenue to, you know, better fund the healthcare system, which has been run down by the pandemic, as well as, you know, funding, say, better standards in long-term care, or where we saw a disaster during the pandemic as well. Um, these are places where, you know, we should be recouping some of this money, recycling it and using it for better you know, better public services. You know, one of the big differences between the tax system in the 60s, for instance, in Canada, and the tax system today is that in the 60s, top marginal tax rates were 70, 80 percent. You know, that last dollar you'd pay 80 percent income tax on. Uh, today, it's closer to 55 percent. And so it's much, you know, in Ontario, for instance, so it's much lower today than it was back then. You could you know, you could imagine the 60s, the CEO says, well, I don't want another million dollars. I'm just going to pay it all in income taxes. Sure, yeah. Uh, today, the CEO is going to say, sure, give me an extra million dollars. I do have to pay some income tax on that, but I'm going to keep a lot of that. Uh, and so it makes a lot more sense. And so, you know, you wonder sometimes if it's just that there's just lower income taxes, CEOs get to keep more of it. And so, therefore, um, you see this ever higher, um, you know, pay uh, every year when it comes to a CEO compensation. Yeah, it's it's an interesting discussion. I appreciate you joining us. Thanks so much, David. Okay, thanks for having me. You bet. That's David McDonald. David is a senior economist at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives and the author of this report into Canada's richest CEOs and what they earn and how quickly they sort of 
lap the rest of us. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.